Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Pareto Podcast, run by me, Mo, a medic by trade, and my co-host, Cam, a physician associate. Now, we both work in the NHS and have been through the hoops of exams, assessments, and professional development. Healthcare is ever-evolving, and we felt that our learning stopped straight after sitting our final exams. CPD was a chore, and it became all about portfolio management. We intend to bring the latest healthcare news and research and translate it to relevant clinical practice for you. Who is this for, you ask? It's for everyone in healthcare. Healthcare and clinical practice is a shared space, so we can't continue to segment our professions. There's so much overlap and reliance on one another, so we'll aim to bring guests and insights from other people in other fields within healthcare. That's enough from me, and I guess with that, welcome to the Pareto Podcast. Welcome back, guys. Episode two. Uh, back at you again, uh, Camille and Mahmo. Uh, nice to see you back. Yeah, nice to see you all. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Camille. Exactly. How's it going? How you yeah, yeah, I'm keeping well. Um, you know, steady away. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, how's work been? How's your week been? Yeah, not too bad. You know, busy. I'm working a hospital, gastroenterology ward, as you, as you know. So dealing with all kind of problems and issues and medical issues that arise from mm. um, pathologies uh, of the gastrointestinal system. So, you know, it's definitely interesting. It keeps us busy. Um, practical side, no. So, you know, in terms of dealing um, medically as well. Yes. Um, there's a few as- aspects of gastroenterology that I'll go into on this episode as well mm. um, in terms of what day-to-day life is about. Mm. what kind of procedures practical is and also other things as well you know wider wise how we can do how we deal with the particular subsect of patients yeah um challenges that arise that kind of thing yeah no it's really i mean gastro patients honestly really scare me sometimes because they they can sometimes look all right and then they become sick very very quickly absolutely um obviously i get a taste of that in accident emergency but you kind of do more of the managing and really dealing with some of the repercussions of their presentations. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, I understand gastro to be quite a comprehensive specialty. Is that, is that? Yeah, I mean, you are dealing with a lot. We deal all the way from, you know, the diseases associated with the mouth all the way to the other back passage. Yeah, <laughs> one into the other. Yeah, which is a polite way of putting things. So we deal with a, a wide variety of things, whether that's, you know, um, bleeding patients such as, mm. Uh, upper gastrointestinal bleed, lower gastrointestinal bleeds, liver problems, mm. uh, gallbladder problems, although the surgeons do help with that. Mm. Um, and also things like inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative yeah. colitis and Crohn's make a big workload. Yeah, um, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. See a lot of those patients in A&E actually. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, these kind of conditions do flare up. Yeah. Um, flare and uh, remission, that's sort of a typical cycle. We just, a lot of the things, the chronic conditions as well. So we're trying to manage them. It's very difficult to sort of completely cure these patients. Mm. We don't have any sort of pills or surgery that can completely cure someone of. Mm. It might remove the um, diseased element of the bowel, mm-hmm. but then people are left with stomas and things such as that. So, which are new fashionings of, um, how should I word it? Um, where they can empty the bowels. Yeah, I guess so. Into the wire, uh, 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 a pouch almost. Pouch. What's the what's the actual thing called? The opening. Uh, the stoma opening. Yeah, via the stoma rather than through the back passage, which is wow. natural. So you know these kind of things. So we are involved heavily with the surgeons. 
Yeah. Um, but, you know, some really interesting drugs, um, you know, some of the new biologic drugs as well. Yes. No, I get um, so, you know, it's quite interesting and yeah, yeah. It definitely keeps us busy. No, good. I mean, we're going to hopefully talk a little bit more about um, more about that. I mean, before we get into the meaty aspect of it, I thought I'd start off with a story. Yeah. Um, why not? I think uh, our line of work brings some interesting cases and some yeah. stories. So, so why not? Um, I start off with uh, A&E, in, in A&E, in uh, the resuscitation area. Um, this patient who came in with um, proper, proper uh, left-sided chest pain. He actually mm. worked at the hospital. Wow. Um, high stakes and, then. <laughs> yeah, man, absolutely high stakes. And he was actually coming into work. He had started with the chest pain the day before, but he just thought it was all right. He was actually fit and well in his 60s um, and, um, you know, quite active. Came into work, drove in and collapsed at the door of the hospital. Wow. He was brought into A&E, he was brought into the ambulance area by some of the ambulance paramedics that were outside. And then they, uh, they uh, did an ECG and lo and behold, it's probably the biggest, the most clearest ST elevation I've seen in my life. <laughs> you, know, you know those textbook yeah. kind of um, clinical schools, kind of like examination-based ones where you get those really typical ST elevations and the diagnosis is really obvious in, in the SBA question. is one of those ones, actually. Um, I looked at it and I thought, yeah, it can't be anything else. There's no doubt. Anyway, um, because where, we, where I work is not the uh, primary center for cardiology, so... Um, I had to call the, the regional center, which, which, which would be Leeds in, in, in this instance, and had a conversation with them and then said, look, this guy's got proper big ST elevation, inferior lead, myocardial infarction. I've given him the starting medications. Yeah. Um, I think you need to take him as a patient. And they said, that's fine. You need to transfer him via blue light ambulance straight to, straight to Leeds. Anyway, the chap was all right in huge amounts of pain. I gave him morphine, gave him all of the stuff. Still in lots of pain, clutching his chest, lots of issues. And uh, we made a decision that actually he's probably going to deteriorate very, very quickly and someone needs to go with him in the ambulance. And uh, that someone was me. So uh, anyway, we, uh, we, we went via Blue Light Ambulance, went across heavy traffic. Yeah. Lots of horns, lots of blue lights. All the problems. All the problems, man. <laughs> All the problems. But got there faster than I'd ever expected, to be okay, honest. Okay, that's good. Managed to get there, but you know what? It became really tense. Um, so I was there on standby, whether the patient needed shocking or not. Um, if 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 they if if their heart stopped working essentially, but he started to get really restless, really short of breath, um, just just all over the place to be honest. And that was because his heart attack must have been so significant. It just put him into absolute heart failure. Mm. So he was getting really sweaty, short of breath, couldn't lie flat. We got to the hospital, we wheeled him in, we went upstairs to cardiology and he, he arrested. He, wow. he had a cardiac arrest at that point and uh, jumped on his chest, started giving him compressions. It was really, really tense. By that time, anesthetists were there and cardiology consultant was there and registrar was there. Anyway, they managed to bring him back, they managed to bring him back. They intubated him and uh, he arrested again. And this was the moment, this was an awesome, like, as in like, I never really thought or imagined something like this was going to happen. He was arresting, they were, he had arrested, they were trying to stabilize him, trying to bring him back to life. They took him to the cath lab, the cath yeah. lab, 
they started primary PCI, so they started to put a catheter in, um, in through his groin, started to wheel it up, go up, go up, go up, go up into the coronary arteries. And then they managed to find the blockage. And at the point of stenting it and opening it, he came to. Wow. As then he got a pulse again. Wow. And I was like, wow, they're literally, and probably in the most truest sense, they literally saved his life. Wow. That That's was amazing. That's pretty crazy, man. The NHS at its best, I think. That is NHS at its best, absolutely. Accident, emergency, all that process, you know, the amount of resources, the amount of people, the amount of, you know, specialist involvement in that case to save that man's life. Wow, that's amazing, you know. And uh, I hope he's doing well now, you know. Yeah, no, Continuing no, on that rehab because we often see in acute cases, we might just save, save the patient, but it's the, the sort of post-recovery phase, yeah, yeah. which is very difficult and often lasts months and months. Absolutely. Um, but... You know, wow, that's that's an amazing case, and yeah, no, it was learning points from that. Honestly, honestly, it was. I thought, um, you know, I thought everyone was played their part. Yeah, think, yeah, you know, the paramedics played their part. Yeah. I think they needed as best as they could. Cardiology yeah. played their part. Yeah, anaesthetics played their part. The cardiac nurses were fantastic, to be yeah. honest. Um, and you know, it was a really, really good case. Mm. But but I want to I want to actually pick up on what you said, to be honest, and mm. I think this will probably allows to segue into the, the bulk of the conversation. Yeah. You, know, you mentioned about the importance of, you know, follow-up care, comprehensive care, yeah. you know, tying knots and ensuring everything is all right. Yeah. Um, you know, from your experience, I know you're, you're in a ward environment as well. No, I am, yeah. How, how, how much of a difference does that make to a patient's experience? <laughs> to be honest, I think right now at the moment, the NHS is struggling with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very good at treating the acute things, putting the life-saving interventions in place and perhaps stabilizing patients from that point. Mm. But the difficulty is, is becoming afterwards when we sort of stabilize the patient, getting them back to a standard of living, yes, uh, quality of life mm. um, that you know would be acceptable to the patient. Mm. Um, and sometimes we're met with sort of unrealistic expectations from patients. Mm. You know, there's severe, you know, um, health burden based on their, you know, unfortunate comorbidities, their other illnesses. Mm. Um, and the patient is not quite ready to accept that, that this is their new sort of baseline function. Yeah. It's oftentimes you see after stroke, for example. Yes. Um, it's a very long, arduous process to get the patient back. Um, and sometimes we never get there. Mm. And that's something it's quite hard to accept as a clinician. Um, also in terms of, you know, sometimes if patients require extra support, mm. Um, acute hospital settings are perhaps not the best way to achieve that. Mm. See all the time in gastroenterology patients, often these patients, unfortunately, there are some elements of, you know, um, poverty levels are quite high, unfortunately. Um, Their housing environment is not safe. Mm. Um, You know, they're not able to to sort of keep themselves uh, safe and also in that habitable a standard of environment of living. So then it's about in terms of getting that to scratch and also giving them some sort of support. Now, currently there's big waiting lists for social support services. Mm. Um, And, you know, from our side, from the ward side, that's what we see that again and again. Mm. Patients, unfortunately, becoming, you know, um, having to spend much longer on Mm. wards than medically required mm. because the social side isn't there, mm. the rehab side isn't there, mm. the district nurse has um, 
setup isn't arranged yet, you know, the carers aren't ready. And that's something we struggle with again and again. And, you know, it's something that I definitely see in terms of the NHS where mm. we get the acute stuff, we stabilise the patient, get them to the point. But it's that afterwards where it's a long, arduous process, it's an expensive process. Mm. It requires many different multidisciplinary teams, whether that's occupational therapy, physiotherapists, mm. general practice, which is under yeah. huge strains at the minute, mm. for sure. Mm. So that's 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 where I see you know how we str we're struggling at the moment, mm. and obviously this causes a knock-on effect. Mm. Um, if a patient is, for example, uh, medically fit, we call that a term medically fit for discharge. Mm. So medically we stabilize them, but we're just waiting for the other aspects, like I mentioned. Yeah. And this has a knock-on effect because that bed is then taken by that patient, and we can't get that run through mm. from A and E mm. or like in a medical assessment unit or even mm. surgical patients. So that's where the difficulty arises. Mm. No, I get that. And I think there's, you know, you've given a lot to unpack there, to be mm. honest, which, which, which is good. I remember speaking to um, uh, a colleague that actually graduated from um, um, an international country within, within the developing world. And I just wanted to ask and pick his brains about, you know, how medicine was practiced there and how things were done there. And he, he said something really interesting. He said... Um, the, the good thing about, he said, the, the positive thing about the NHS is that it's true to the research. Yeah. I was a little bit taken back by that. I said, what, what do you mean by true to the research here? Yeah? And he said, because he goes, where I come from, and I'm not going to mention where he comes from, but he goes, where I come from. So we're really good at the, you know, dealing with the issue. So yeah. someone comes with, with, someone has broken a bone, requires surgery. Someone has got hepatitis, requires some medication. Someone has got, you know, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, you know. So someone's got an acute medical issue, yeah. we can deal with it. It's not a problem. Very efficiently, you know, very well. But we know that in terms of the research, your health is determined by so many different things. Um, you, you obviously mentioned a few of those, social housing as an example, yeah. where you're living, your health behaviours, um, you know, outlets and help to different services. Yeah. So many different, it's very multifaceted. Yeah. Um, and he said, where, where, where I come from, that's where people are failed. That's, that's where the failure comes in because there isn't any consideration for any of those different things. Mm. Whilst definitely in the NHS, there is, um, you know, there is an attempt to try and address some of those different, um, things that affect, would you say that's the case? Yeah. I mean, definitely NHS, unfortunately does become that safety net, mm. which is good in certain aspects, but it's not. It's not exactly tailored to have that function where it, it's a, it can do everything for every patient. Unfortunately, it can't one with the lack of resources, um, staff level specialists, funding, you know, and in terms of, you know, different things, if I mention it, especially on the mental health side, mm. I think that's a big, big issue at the massive, moment. Massive, massive. With the NHS um, in terms of, you know, um, whether that's, any eating disorders, which we definitely see, mm. see on our uh, ward, or whether there's other things such as like overdoses, mm. acute mental health issues, psychosis, that kind of mm. thing. No, um, sure. And that's very, very difficult to de deal with. Um, requires a lot of time, patience, resource, and also, um, you know, allocation of 
real real resource. Yeah, time. for sure. I mean, it's it's really stretched, isn't it? As in, um, there's probably not a day in my practice where I don't see someone who's got quite severe mental health issues, whether that be anxiety, whether that be depression related, or more severely psychosis. And yeah. recently, especially where I'm working, um, there have been a few patients that have required sectioning, mm. and you know, the sectioning is so important for them because they're obviously at a threat of their own life or yeah. someone else's well-being, but there, there just isn't enough of, of a service that will help to keep them. So some of these patients are being transferred, you know, across the country to the other side of the country mm. because that's that's where the only mm. um, mental health bed is. Yeah. Um, and you, it's painful, isn't it? Like Because yeah. you, you know how yeah. vital these things are, yeah, but yeah. there just isn't enough of a service to provide Absolutely. them. So when you talk about sectioning, you mean mental health? Mental health sectioning, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So sectioning. Under the Mental Health Act, someone yes. would be unable to have, is uh, currently not having the capacity or insights yes. into what they're doing. So for their own safety and yes. their well-being, we need to sort of uh, treat them yeah. sometimes against their active will at that moment in time, perhaps admit them as an inpatient. So that's what it means of sectioning. Mm. There's different levels to that as well um, in terms of whether how long the duration is, mm. what kind of things you can do with this patient. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's levels of protection for the patient as well mm. in terms of perhaps getting some family members next of kin involved mm. in that decision. Um, an independent mental health uh, practitioner, mm. an IMCA. Yes. Um, so these kind of things, I mean, but yeah, it's very, very difficult. So in terms of the broad NHS, there's so many different things that it can do. And like I say, is that final sort of safety net for patients, vulnerable patients? And sometimes stories are real, really sad, you know, and patients don't have any next of kin. Uh, perhaps uh, they're from a different country and they're in this country and, you know, they've sort of, there's no ties with anyone else. They don't have that friendship group mm. that perhaps me and you enjoy. So, mm. you know, they lean on NHS services a bit more than the average person. Mm. And, you know, it can be really difficult, you know, in terms of getting these people, uh, these patients, the right support. Yeah, I mean, some, some people are just, as, as difficult as it is to say, but some people are just lonely. Yeah, um, yeah, very true. And, and they come... Not to seek company, but to seek at least some somewhere where they can offload, have a conversation. Because unfortunately, there isn't really anyone that's looking after them. Or yeah, they're able to have they aren't able to have a, a conversation with someone. Absolutely, um, I do see that a lot with my general practice colleagues. Yeah, um, and also GPs, but also physician associates working mm-hmm. in general practice, Indeed. nursing colleagues working in general practice. They do see you know elements of deprivation, but also yeah, loneliness, like you mentioned. Patients not having that um, that family support, and we can, you know, research shows that loneliness is, you know, can be as bad as smoking cigarettes, 15, 20 cigarettes a day. Okay, wow. You know, on their mental health, but also their physical health as well. Wow, I, I didn't know that. That's, yeah, that's you know, just good. with you know being deprived of that humans as a nature, we're social beings. Indeed, yeah. we need that connection, we need that love, warmth, mm. affection from others, and also to feel that people support. Mm. supporters cared about us that mm. you know we're valued members and you know it's very sad to see certain patients not in being able to enjoy that which i think is a key yeah. part of life no it's true it's true yeah, can i ask a question of course just just out of interest because i know you're um uh, because you know the the, the the ward environment is is very different to the to the a e environment as in yeah you know in, in a e where we're usually really responsible for trying to we've got a set amount of time yeah. find the issue Diagnose the problem, take your bloods and do your x-ray yeah. quickly. 
and work and make one decision. Is this person coming in or is this person going home? That's basically our, the specialty um, in a nutshell. And, um, to, and, and that's quite a difficult decision to make sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, going into, we don't really, we do try, but we don't really go into the nitty gritty, the, the, the really, the depth, not only of the medicine, but also the depth of, you know, the circumstances and the different issues. Um, one thing I've definitely struggled with is, is kind of helping to counsel patients on health behaviors. Yeah. So I know in gastro, you probably get certain people with certain health behaviors that they have that's yeah. really contributing to their repeated presentations, admissions, et cetera. What's your experience dealing with those types so, of cases? Uh, yeah. So it can be difficult. Um, I can see what you're sort of alluding to. And for example, the typical, unfortunately, especially if I'm talking about liver, mm. um, cirrhosis, that mm. kind of thing. Um, it's definitely a typical patient would definitely be a heavy drinker mm. um, with a heavy alcohol intake for many years. Now the liver is a remarkable organ. There is an element of the liver being quite robust and mm. resistant to that damage. Mm. But, you know, it can only tolerate that for so long until there's sort of permanent scarring, mm -hmm. which is known as cirrhosis. Um, and that can af affect the function of the liver. Now mm. the liver has so many functions mm. um, and it can affect... Um, your well-being. Mm. You can often see these patients jaundice. That's one of the first things you probably see. Mm. Looking a bit yellow, mm. uh, feeling unwell, sick, mm. maybe feverish. Um, oftentimes, you see them with big bellies. Yeah, um, that's unfortunate. A complication as well. Uh, develop a, a fluid in the abdomen mm. that's known as ascites. Can get infected. Mm. Um, uh, when it's patients in these sort of stages. They're not eating very well. They have no appetite. Yeah. So that can affect their sort of electrolytes. That can make them more unwell. Mm -hmm. So it's a very vicious cycle that you want to kind of... And at the fundamental level, the core being is oftentimes the excessive alcohol intake. Um, you're right. We do try and, you know, once we've got to unstabilize them from that, oftentimes it's requiring medication, whether that's diuretics to get fluid off, um, water tablets commonly known as, or a drain to perhaps get the fluid off the uh, abdomen, mm. improve their diet, um, fix any electrolyte imbalances such as potassium, mm. um, these kind of things, magnesium often, um, get the dietitian involved. But once we've got all that and sort of stabilize the patient, we need to counsel this patient on not drinking mm. alcohol. And oftentimes it's very, very difficult. Mm. Um, oftentimes their social... Uh, so the socializing all revolves around alcohol and yeah. um, oftentimes they are lonely oftentimes that is their one outlet mm. which which they enjoy yeah and alcohol is so freely available and quite cheap in this country yeah. that unfortunately is quite difficult you know we see adverts for alcohol freely available in mm. supermarkets very very difficult to avoid that temptation and you know it's not our job to judge these patients is mm. to sure. advise them best in terms of what kind of complications like they can lead and often it is life limiting. Mm. Um, I see patients, unfortunately, very, very sad, but pass away from alcohol induced liver cirrhosis mm. in their forties and their fifties. Wow. Really? Um, and it's really not a nice way to go. Oftentimes they, um, they have sort of, uh, complications such as bleeding because 
uh, the coagulation is affected, which is how thin the blood is. Mm -hmm. So once the liver is affected, it can make your blood more runny. So it has a similar effect to the anticoagulants such as warfarin um, and these kind of drugs. Mm -hmm. has a similar effect. I'm not saying the mechanism is similar, but the blood is more thin. Yes, right. So you're more likely to bleed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these patients can come now have a massive upper GI bleeds mm -hmm. and bleed to death or vomiting blood or losing blood in this way. And sometimes it's a very horrific death mm -hmm. as well. Um, and it's very, very difficult to solve. Not only that, but stabilizing the patient patients promising not to drink alcohol but you know unfortunately once they go back to the community because of however many factors um resume drinking uh, now it's not our job to judge but like i say it's definitely these many many factors that would lead them to this no for sure i mean it's it's very illustrative of the fact that you know something as um simple in speech marks, I guess, in quotation marks, as alcohol can lead to, yeah. or in excess can lead to so many different things. Absolutely. But, and you're right, you mentioned something that we shouldn't be judgmental because often there is a reason as to why these individuals are drinking so much. Yeah. They might have gone through a particular life event. Yeah. They may be, you know, using alcohol as a means by which they can, you know, make themselves feel better, yeah. deal with their mental health issues, mm. whatever it may be. Um, or just born in a circumstance where alcohol is just seen as the thing to go to whenever you're, whenever you're kind of faced with any trouble. Um, and and we, we go by a certain code of conduct, don't we? We Absolutely, have yeah. duty of candor as an example. Yeah. We maintain patient confidentiality. Yeah. We, we remain impartial in patient care and we try to basically care for them. Um, I mean, definitely what I, what I try and do, um, is, you know, as well as alcohol, smoking also applies for like COPD, et cetera. Absolutely. So many patients come in with, with really bad COPD yeah. lungs that are paper thin, you know, yeah. not expanding anymore really. Yeah. And they're still smoking, man. And yeah. it's like, yeah, they're still, they're still taking, you know, 15, 20 cigarettes a day and, you know, on, and, but this on, on one side, but then on oxygen, you know, mm. well, even though, they, they, you know, that's questionable, they shouldn't be on oxygen, but they've obviously twisted a few stories sometimes. And that's a different issue. But, you know, having to take inhalers, nebulizers and all sorts of different things. Mm. And I can't help but saying, you're still smoking. And then, you know, patient goes, yeah, I still am. And it's like, maybe you it can really be, stop. it can be frustrating. It can really, be, really, it can be frustrating, especially when you see the patients are the same patients again and again um it's often a story and unfortunately in my case every time you see them they're a bit worse they're a bit along their prognosis their prognostic so we have certain scores that give a, an indication as to mm. uh, prognosis in terms of how long this patient mm. what kind of quality of life this patient is going to lead and every time you see them the bloods are a little bit worse clinically they're doing a little bit worse they're not able to mobilize their acidic fluid, their ascites is a lot more. There's shorter gaps between them leading the drain. Um, and that gradual decline, sometimes it can be quick, sometimes it can be slow. Mm. Um, and it's very, very difficult to manage. But that, that are the challenges of working in, I think, modern NHS, working in sort of uh, medical specialties, mm. working in uh, gastroenterology in particular. But there are good things as well. I mean, yeah. we, we often see, you know, patients... Um, with, for example, bleeds, um, we can manage that, you know, we do scopes. So, you know, patients, you know, um, have a change in bowel habit. Um, that's a red flag, in, especially in the over over 60s. Mm -hmm. So if the patient presents a GP, they will send us 
to our department for endoscopy. Mm-hmm. We'll scope the patient and we'll give them good news that, you know, no, there's, there's no reason really, mm-hmm. or there was a benign polyp that we removed or anything like that is often good news, you know, or a patient will present with, you know, I've been taking pain relief, ibuprofen typically mm-hmm. for some kind of pain that's developed an ulcer, which developed a bleed. Mm-hmm. We stem the bleeding with a scope, yep. tell them some safety and don't take this ibuprofen. We'll give them some gastro protection such as Lanzoprazole or something simple like yeah. that. And we, you know, the patient leaves happy, we've cured the problem, they solved. So it's not always about, you know, the doom and gloom. Sometimes there are positive stories like that as well, which we, you know, we deal with the patient from start to finish. We effectively cure them mm-hmm. and send them home to, to live on. You know? Good. I've got another question actually on, on, on this. Um, you mentioned about, um, you know, sometimes your general practice colleagues referring patients in for, um, changing bowel habits and requiring some investigations and you feed back to them that this is what it was, cancer, polyp, whatever it may yeah, be. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you talk to primary care colleagues regularly and how close is your liaison normally? Yeah, so there's different methods of communication depending on how urgent the query is. Mm. So oftentimes if a patient has been referred for, for example, a suspected you know, bowel cancer or anything like that, we'll get the, the scope done or the biopsies, however, we need to do the mm. investigation. And a report is submitted to them quite urgently. Mm. Sometimes it's, the question is more sort of uh, urgent than that. Yeah. So they're requiring sort of feedback um, sort of that same day or whatever. And in that way, they can call in and ask one of our registrars or consultants nice. a question. Uh, oftentimes it's related to um, patients have some routine bloods mm-hmm. and their liver function tests are off, for example, um, you know, and they just want to see if it's an urgent, um, you know, need for admit to hospital, keep an eye on it, if there's anything that they'd want to do in this circumstance. And they often ask for advice in that way. Um, so I think that's one of the most commonest ones. Um, oftentimes there are set pathways, a lot of pathways in the NHS uh, via NICE, yeah. Um, so National Institute of Clinical Health and Ex- Excellence. And they will suggest to primary care colleagues in w- what if a patient in this age group presents like this, mm-hmm. for example, with um, dysphagia, so pain on eating, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is the pathway. If they have these certain criteria, this is how they need to be referred or this is how they need to be managed. So that helps a lot, to be honest, you know, and um, general practice colleagues, some of them are very experienced and they know how to deal with that. And then we can sort of refer them to them guidelines as well that would, but if there's an urgent question, then you can definitely get in touch with us and we would uh, we would deal with that query. Fine. No, sounds, sounds, sounds good. Um, I, th- I think, you know, I think that's probably the crux of the conversation. Yeah. Um, uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, the gastroenterology side and, you know, inpatient wards in particular. Yes. Um, perhaps on the next episode, we can discuss about A&E in more depth. Yeah, we and, can do. And I can <laughs> shift the focus onto you, perhaps. Sorry, man. <laughs> I thought you, you definitely had the more interesting insights this time around. Um, so uh, yeah. felt more like an interview, but don't worry about that. So we can ask you for, for some questions. And if anybody has questions, yeah. uh, let us know. Um, yeah. Whether that's via uh, any social media, uh, yeah. Pareto, uh, let us know in the comments um, reach out uh, we're always happy to help yeah, we'll put some sure. contact details at the end mm. um, and then you can reach out to us no brilliant we'll put um, all of the uh, the website and also our main social media and email onto the um, the bio um, of this video but um, thank you very much for tuning in yeah. uh, it's been a really insightful uh, conversation and sharing of experiences but um, until next time guys thank you we'll see you later on